city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. With all this going on in Washington, these days the word whistleblower is a word that every one of us has heard. It's a word and a concept that we Americans have a love-hate relationship with. On the one hand, there are few words that have as many negative synonyms as the word whistleblower. Think of rat or snitch or tattletale or fink. But on the other, whistleblowers have been responsible for some of our most important consumer protections, like Dr. Jerry Wigand to expose safety problems in the tobacco industry, all the way to Colleen Raleigh to expose the ignoring and mishandling of information by the FBI prior to 9-11. Welcome to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on whistleblowing and workplace investigations. And I am thrilled to introduce our guest, Amy Oppenheimer, who's a former administrative law judge and has over 35 years of experience in employment law, wearing a lot of different hats, including an attorney, investigator, arbitrator, mediator, and trainer. Her areas of expertise include investigating and preventing workplace harassment and discrimination and responding to allegations of harassment, retaliation, whistleblower claims, discrimination, and other forms of workplace misconduct. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. So let's start by just kind of defining what exactly is whistleblowing. You know, there are all kinds of statutes about whistleblowing that have legal definitions, but there's also just the generic um, definition of somebody who notifies an organization of a complaint. So for an employment setting, the employee that says, hey, there's this concern over here, it might not involve them directly, but you should know about it, whether it's health and safety or harassment um, or fraud, other types of wrongdoing. So I know that there's oftentimes this talk about it's in the public interest or in the public good. So what does that mean when it comes to whistleblowing? What it means is that something may be going on in a public agency or within an employer that is detrimental to not only the employees of the organization, but perhaps the public. Maybe funds are not being used appropriately. Um, People are not working when they're supposed to be and they're public employees. Whatever it is, it's damaging the not only the employees of that organization, but potentially the public because of where these funds are going, that where they shouldn't, uh, going where they shouldn't be, or um, people are being advantaged in ways that are biased and they shouldn't be. You know, I think that's kind of an interesting concept because in preparing for this show, I was doing quite a bit of reading on kind of famous whistleblowers. And I really didn't understand that there have been some pretty amazing changes in the law and in some policies and procedures really as a result of whistleblower complaints. And I don't know if you're familiar with the whole Tuskegee um, syphilis study where I think as a result of this person blowing the whistle on the fact that they were conducting these basically experiments and they were observing these men without letting them know that they had this condition and that there was medication available. And as, as a direct result of this whistleblowing, a lot of our 
informed consent policies and procedures and research came about. And so it seems like that there is certainly a very positive or a potentially positive impact of whistleblower complaints, at least on the people who come after the whistleblower. But what about the whistleblower him or herself? Well, of course, the fear there is retaliation. And, and yes, I agree completely that, I mean, the study that you talked about was just abhorrent, that, that um, we've had these health studies at the expense of, of human beings who we're treating as if, or worse than you would treat an animal. Um, but going back to the person who brings the complaint, then clearly there are fears of and a reality of potential retaliation for bringing the complaint. Um, and it's interesting that, that you are, your awareness of the negative connotations, because I don't think of so much of the negative connotations. Maybe that comes about because some whistleblowers might have a dubious um, motive for bringing a complaint. But a, a whistleblower with a good motive, I, I don't see why there would be a negative connotation associated with them. Well, you know, it's interesting because, Amy, I've known you for a few years now, which is unlike a lot of the guests that I have, and I've also done quite a bit of workplace investigations, and I don't know, I don't know if you would share this at all in your work, but I have to say, I definitely encountered cases where clearly the individual who was complaining had a legitimate complaint, and sometimes not just for themselves, but for other people. And, you know, there's some attempt to protect people in the company. And yet, there did seem to be this kind of ambivalence and this almost sense of like, you're not being loyal, you know, you're being disloyal. And that even though you might have a valid complaint, I did see kind of ambivalence sometimes on the part of corporate executives toward this person. You make a good point. I guess because I believe so strongly that that's wrong for the corporation, that you want people who are going to tell you about bad behavior and fraud. In, in, when people come to me and say, how can you really work for a company in doing an investigation and also be impartial, I compare it to hiring somebody to look at the foundation of your house. You don't want to hire the person who's going to say, oh, it's great, it's wonderful, and then a year later the whole thing crumbles because it wasn't great and wonderful. You want to hire the person who's going to tell you the truth so you can do something about it. And that's how I see investigations of whistleblowing, harassment, whatever it is, that the sooner you know the truth, the sooner you can fix it. I completely agree. And, I, you know, maybe it's a good point to step back a minute and talk about how do you, Amy, typically get called into a company to do an, an impartial investigation? Well, one of the things that people are concerned about is that I am called in by the company because there is nobody else who is going to call me in and pay my bill to do this. It's not as if we've got some government agency that is coming in to investigate a whistleblowing complaint. Sometimes they might. I mean, if you have a health and safety violation or with a harassment situation, maybe you bring a complaint with the EEOC, but that takes potentially years to investigate. And in the meantime, the employer has the duty to respond. And so inevitably, who hires me is the employer. But 
I'll only work for them if they give me free reign, meaning they hire me to do an impartial investigation. They give me access to the information that I need to do that investigation. And you know, there, there may be discussions, do you really need this? Or this is particularly sensitive, I want you to be careful with your use of this. And you try to be respectful of private sensitive information, but you still have to be given the information that you need in order to make the findings. And, and that's my task. I'm hired to make factual findings. So Amy, why would somebody hire an independent investigator versus having somebody in-house conduct that investigation? Oh, well, look, lots of investigations are done by in-house people, but sometimes the allegations are against somebody so high up in the organization that an in-house person doesn't really have enough authority and independence or just the optics of it, even if they felt they had that, wouldn't look right. Sometimes they don't have the capacity internally. These are time consuming and they take certain skills. They may not have somebody with both the skills and the time to really do the job. I, I don't think that most investigations need to be done by an external, but certainly some of them do. And that's a choice that's got to be made carefully. So what kind of whistleblower complaints do you most commonly deal with? If you're using the term more generically, not under a specific whistleblowing statute, which, as I said, there are many, then that would be anybody who is essentially blowing the whistle, which, you know, where obviously the term came from, on conduct that they believe violates the law or internal rules. So that might be the person who sees harassment, not experiencing it directly, but they see it going on. Or the person who says, you know, women aren't being paid equally to men in this organization. The, those types of health and safety issues that I mentioned, I don't always investigate those, but they're pretty common. I, I would only investigate them if I had the expertise. Often you want somebody with specific expertise to come in and do that. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things I wanted to, to really emphasize that you said was the fact that you don't have to be experiencing it directly to report it. And that was one of the things that I saw over and over again in my workplace investigations where you would have, you know, people who sometimes would come and say, this is happening to my employee or my coworker or whatever. And oftentimes it seemed like managers or even HR sometimes would feel like, well, we haven't gotten a complaint yet without realizing that that in and of itself is a complaint. That's right. Any notice is a complaint. Um, we just did one with a complaint against somebody at a very high level where somebody else learned through access, maybe an IT person had access to emails and saw that there was an affair going on, resulting in favoritism and potentially some misuse of funds. And so then you get the financial issue, you get the favoritism in terms of how you're treating employees, even if it's a consensual relationship, so it wouldn't be considered harassment, 
there might be a lot going on there that's not appropriate. So you come in, you've been called by an employer who says we've had this complaint, maybe it's a high level executive, or maybe it's like you said, the optics, we want to make sure that our employees really see us taking, you know, making good faith effort to get this resolved impartially and independently. What do you then do when you come in? I always start with the person who brought the complaint, unless it's an anonymous complaint. Now, some of these whistleblower complaints might come in through an 800 number, a hotline, um, an anonymous letter. And so I may, if I can, I want to start with the person who brought the complaint because I want to fully understand what that complaint is. If I can't start with that person, then I've got to look at what, which section is this about within the organization? You know, who might be involved? Who might have information? And so I may start a little more generically. Why don't I do a survey, either in person or electronically, of the people in that area to get their view of a number of topics, including what I'm looking for, without signaling it too much so that I can really get an honest, hopefully, response about it. So you're talking right now about getting an anonymous complaint. Yes, that second okay, okay. part is when, when I have an anonymous complaint and I can't go to the complainant, then it's more unique. And I've got to figure out a way to get that information based on what I know that might be a little different each time because it's going to be very dependent on what I do know and how large the organization is, how I think I can best access what's behind that complaint. Okay, because I think that's again, another good, brilliant point because I think, I don't know, my experience is that people are pretty skeptical about anonymous complaints. Well, again, you know, um, some of them may not be valid, but some of them are, and you have to just keep an open mind when you go forward. Is it somebody with an ax to grind, or is it somebody who's really scared of retaliation and has a legitimate issue that they're putting forward? And the other thing is that sometimes the complainant does have an ax to grind, but they're also correct. You know, you see that happening now where Trump really wants to know who is this whistleblower because with the viewpoint of if there's somebody with an ax to grind, then it undermines what they have to say, but not necessarily. As an administrative law judge, I, for 19 years, I heard employment disputes. And often an employee who was terminated would say, oh, they really had it out to get me, and that's why I was fired. My point is, but what did you do? Because let's say they really had it out to get you, and then you stole money. I don't really care what their motive is. If you stole, that's considered misconduct. You don't get your unemployment benefits. I was an unemployment judge. So motive only has relevance in, in terms of maybe un looking at the credibility of the complaint. Once you have the facts underlying it, the recording of the phone call, the other people, whatever, the, the fact that somebody is on a video stealing money, the motive becomes irrelevant. That is such an interesting point because I think another issue where that kind of comes into play is I've done so many harassment investigations where 
there was a lot of talk and perhaps the employee maybe wasn't the best employee. Maybe they were late chronically or whatever. And yet what I would find sometimes, and this was not, I think, the norm, but there was no documentation of any of these employee performance issues. And then in the discussion about the results of the investigation or how things move forward, sometimes somebody would say like, well, you know, while we're some, you know, we're dealing with this harassment complaint and the steps we need to do to resolve this, we need to also address these performance deficits. And yet you and I know that, you know, that becomes very tricky. Because if you have an employee that has no history of performance problems from a documentation standpoint, then they've made a complaint. And now as part of the resolution of this complaint, we're going to start writing this employee up for all these different things. That could easily look like retaliation. That's right. And that just comes down to basic management practices. People don't want to take the time to have good management practices. Let somebody know when their performance is subpar, tell them objectively why, give them information about what they need to do to improve it, and then you don't get these kinds of issues with um, not having a record of things that, you're right, you absolutely should have a record of that. You can't start your record after somebody complained. So let's define retaliation from a legal standpoint. Legally, retaliation is taking adverse action against somebody for bringing a complaint. And again, you have to meet certain legal criteria as to what is adverse action, what is bringing a complaint. So, for example, in a discrimination complaint, somebody who filed something with EEOC or in California DFEH, and then they... um, then they suffer some adverse action. That would be considered retaliation. Adverse action, you know, obviously a termination is adverse action, but it could be changing the location where they worked, something that is much less convenient for them, changing their schedule, obviously a demotion, that sort of thing. And how often do you find, Amy, in your investigations that perhaps the initial complaint might have been poor judgment, might have been, you know, not good business practice, but in your opinion, maybe doesn't rise to the level of something that's actionable, either legally or even from a corporate standpoint, and yet the retaliation component becomes a bigger part of the investigation than the actual initial complaint. I think that happens frequently. It's hard for supervisors and managers to not take this personally, but they can't. They really have to accept that people have a right to bring a complaint. Somebody will look at it objectively. They need to cooperate, and they need to not treat someone differently. And you can see that some people just can't quite manage that, and then they make things worse for themselves. They they really didn't discriminate against somebody. They had a poor performing employee. They didn't do anything wrong, but there's a complaint. And they're so angry about it that they can't control themselves. And it's, it's really a shame because they, they start out with a legitimate situation that they then make worse for themselves. I think that's, that's all time 
sometimes just sadly true. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the legal protections and implications for whistleblowers. You are listening to Amy Oppenheimer and myself, Dr. Joni Johnston. Our show today is on whistleblowing and workplace investigations on America Out Loud. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Amy Oppenheimer, and our show is on whistleblowing, something we've all been hearing about um, maybe more than we'd like these days. Uh, But I think it's important to talk about these kinds of complaints and workplace investigations in general. So we left off at the break talking about whistleblowing, and I want to just talk a little bit a bit briefly, Amy, about legal protections for whistleblowers who decide to complain. There are a number of different whistleblowing statutes. California just um, passed new laws strengthening that. The point is that the law is encouraging people to be able to come forward without being retaliated against so that they know that they have protections based on the law to free them up to be able to bring forward complaints. And so I guess it sounds like, again, the reasoning being that there is a public interest in individuals who are inside of a company and observing things that are illegal to be able to complain without retaliation. Well, exactly. And I think that part of what the Me Too movement did was really bring to light how much goes on that people are afraid to come forward about. And the more protections people feel they really do have to come forward, the more an institution is going to be able to find out what's really going on. And, you know, I want to speak to that fear because I think individuals, at least my experience, was I think I probably underestimated the fear that so many people that I interviewed really had in coming forward with a complaint. Um, And I'm just wanting to speak to that in terms of, let's say somebody is in a company and they're observing perhaps a safety violation um, or they're observing some illegal activity. What should they do? How should they complain or should they complain? Well, obviously everybody has to make that decision for themselves. They can't say that they're, might not be a risk in them doing it. And they also have to evaluate, is this something serious? I mean, sometimes people are, no, no, this has to be 100% by the book and something's not, something's 95% by the book, but, um, and they say, well, that should be a complaint. That could be an opportunistic or, or a frivolous complaint if basically things are still safe and appropriate. But when things go beyond that, when things really cross a line in terms of safety, their safety could be threatened, somebody else's safety could be threatened, or in terms of harassment or other wrongdoing, then I think surfacing a complaint is the right thing to do. 
and that individual has to assess um, whether they're willing to take what could be a risk in, in being in that role and then make some choices about how to do it. So what is the best way for someone to report suspected wrongdoing? I don't know I could you could say there's one best way. I first of all, again, how how serious is it and how intentful do they think it is? Maybe let's say there's a harassment situation where somebody is doing something offensive, but they may not realize that they are really overstepping. Maybe there's a way to intervene to be what some people call a bystander, and now we call an upstander. They could stand up and say, hey, you know, I don't think this person really likes being treated that way, or take the person aside. Maybe if it's a, if it's a safety issue, they can take the manager aside and say, hey, are you aware of that? Seems like it's a concern. Perhaps if they get more information, they'll realize it's not a concern, or it will confirm the fact that it is a concern. But if there's not enough trust that management is going to be able, is going to be open to dealing with it in an informal way, then they have to make a decision about going a more formal route. That could be an anonymous letter. That could be a call to an agency. Um, or it could be an, a non-anonymous letter, a letter from them to management. That's a strategic decision that the individual is going to have to make. They certainly would want to keep a record of what they do. And in, in order to get some types of whistleblower protections, there would need to be a complaint to an agency. It depends on what law it arises under. So to get those protections, they may well want to make sure they've put their complaint in front of some kind of public agency. So it sounds like, and I think there's a lot of support for this, at least in the California legal system, that there's this kind of preference that depending upon, again, what the situation is, to handle it informally if possible, if that doesn't work, to then start moving it up the, moving it up the chain of command. So maybe going to your immediate supervisor, going to a manager, going to HR. If it doesn't, you know, if nothing gets resolved in HR, maybe going up to a senior VP or whatever the chain of command is, and then, you know, kind of as a last resort going outside of the company. I'm wondering from your experience, Amy, what percentage of complainants that you interview kind of do that, to try to do that, and then if that doesn't work, escalate it? I think most people try something more informal before they go a formal route, but there's also a percentage of people and maybe these are the folks where whistleblowers get a bad reputation that like to make noisy complaints about everything. And those people, I think, are more outliers, but they may just go, I'm going to go right to the governor, or I'm going to go right to the head of the whatever the um, agency is that would be the appropriate place. So it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is that really the way people complain or blow the whistle or whatever, however we want to term it use, really does either add or take away to their credibility. 
and that when individuals ideally should probably try to follow those change of commands and go out of the you know organization really when either when things aren't getting resolved or when there's some compelling reason to believe that trying to get it resolved in-house is not going to work. They're going to be retaliated against it. I know I've seen situations and, and not that often, but I've definitely seen situations where individuals in talking with me have said, well, I'm afraid to go to this person because there's a history here. And the history has been that when somebody goes to this person, they're fired over well, these exactly. kind of complaints. Exactly. Is it may not be their experience, but they may have observed other people. So that's where if somebody doesn't follow a chain of command, even if they haven't experienced being ignored or retaliated against, if they have seen that pattern, that's certainly a reason for them to not go through the chain of command. You alluded earlier to this issue of false complaints or frivolous complaints, and I really, really want to address this issue because another thing I ran into a lot of times in doing training was this kind of perception that either complaints were frivolous or they were made up or, you know, a lot of them were, it's just to get money. And I want to know from your experience, how valid are those perceptions? Well, I certainly think that there are some people who do that. I think they're the minority. One of the terms that we use is opportunistic complaints. Somebody doesn't complain and then they get a bad review or there's about to be a layoff or they start to feel insecure about their job and then they bring a complaint and it appears to be opportunistic. In some cases, it's still a legitimate complaint because they may have decided, I don't want to risk my job to bring this complaint. But then when their job is looking insecure, they don't have so much to lose. They say, okay, I may as well do it at this point. Or it may be that they take something and exaggerate it so that there's a kernel of truth, but they're taking things out of context. And so in that sense, then they're not as credible. It's rare that people make things up out of whole cloth. Not saying it doesn't happen, but there's usually some grain of truth, but there are people who take things out of context, who exaggerate, um, who are opportunistic. Every complaint though, you have to look at with an open mind and look to whether there is validity and the credibility of the person bringing the complaint and the people who the complaint are against. That's, it's so interesting and so complicated to some extent. You know, when you were talking, a couple of things kind of came to mind. Very early in my career as a psychologist, I used to do kind of divorce evaluations or custody evaluations. And um, I have to say, I quickly quit doing them like, for a I number. I family law for a while too. It's uh, not. It's <laughs> not. It's not for the faint-hearted, that's for sure. And one of the things that was really difficult for me, and it, it really speaks to your kind of, it isn't always kind of either or, is I evaluated a couple of cases which really stick in my mind because these were allegations of sexual abuse on the part of the husband that the wife was bringing. And of course, initially it seemed very coincidental that these complaints surfaced in the context of this kind of messy and ugly custody battle. And, and sometimes the complaints really were just a strategic attempt to kind of get custody, which was very difficult for me personally to, to handle. But in some respects, 
Equally difficult were the couple of cases I saw when it was clear that there was evidence that sexual abuse had been going on. It had been going on for a number of years. And there was even evidence that the, the wife knew about this. Mm. And so this had been going on. And yet, and it speaks to your kind of comments earlier about timing of complaints and it can't, doesn't have to be either or. And that, of course, only when there was this kind of messy divorce that the wife decided to disclose this. And, and that just shows, I think, like you were saying, how complicated some of these situations can be. Well, the, the discrimination and harassment complaints are these little human mystery dramas that have so many facets to them. That's different, of course, from something like um, that's more data-driven, an equal pay case, or the, the health and safety issues where um, there may be more of a clear-cut violation. Although, again, what seems clear-cut once you get into the facts of it often becomes much more nuanced. I'd like to talk about the whole issue of equal pay and complaints about that because that just seems like an incredibly difficult road to hoe. I mean, how would one employee be understand that this was going on systemically and even probably more significantly and importantly, how would that person even begin to kind of prove that? Well, the, there's certainly a lot of data about pay. In the first question you asked, I mean, that, that's the whole history of the, the court case of, on equal pay where for years this woman had no idea she was being paid unequally and, and there was a statute of limitations issue because in private companies you don't know what your co-worker is making. In the public sector it's all everybody has a, uh, a trajectory and you don't have those kinds of issues although how you classify certain uh, jobs may, may be gender-based and therefore you might have an equal pay issue. But if you have the same title and level, you're going to be paid the same. Whereas in the private sector, it could be all over the map. Interestingly, companies are starting to become more transparent about pay, recognizing that the, the lack of transparency has meant that it's much harder for women to, uh, to assert these claims, to determine whether they're being paid equally. And so companies that are committed to equity, to gender equity, are starting to look at more transparency, which is great. I might put you on the spot here a little bit, Amy. Um, but I was just thinking, tell me, or can you give an example of a particularly complicated investigation that you did that kind of had some of these twists and turns and how you helped the company resolve it? Well, a pay case that comes to mind was one where the an individual claimed that he was being paid less based on race. And it involved um, truckers and being given assignments to, and they were paid by load and by mileage and a whole complicated formula. So I had to figure out how are these people paid because um, the, per, the, the dispatcher had a lot of power in determining who got what load. And some of the loads, you were able to make a lot more money because you could do more loads in a day, they were where they were located, et cetera. 
So in order to really understand equality, you had to understand how that job worked. Once I then understood that and I looked at it, I was able to put together a whole chart of how the loads were assigned. And what I realized is that there was favoritism going on, but it wasn't racially based because there were some African-Americans who were being given more favorable loads and some whites who were given less favorable loads but the person who brought the complaint was not was given very unfavorable loads he was african american but by getting into all of that data i could see that what happened is the dispatcher had personal friends of various races and he would give them the good loads and the people that he didn't like as much he'd give the bad loads so there you can tell an employer you have a problem it's not a race problem but it's still a problem you should not have your dispatcher making decisions based on who he likes and you know it's interesting you're talking about kind of a race related complaint because i still get phone calls or emails that say something along the lines of you know, I think I'm being discriminated against. And when you kind of look into what the person is saying, what they're saying is I am a member, I'm a woman, I am, you know, a minority, I am from a, you know, religious minority or whatever, and I'm being mistreated in the workplace. And as you and I know, it's not A and B, it's got to be I'm being mistreated because I am a man or a minority or a white or whatever, not, and I'm being mistreated. And I think sometimes that's difficult, A, for employees to get their heads around. Um, and also, you know, it's difficult for them to see that sometimes, like you said, because it can be easy to say, oh, it must be because of A or B or C, when in fact it might be a problem, as you alluded to, but it may be, the problem may be something very, very different. Well, it's, they're speculating as to motive. Sometimes they, there's a concrete reason to think it's gender linked or racially linked. But other times, as you said, it's just, you think, well, I'm a woman and I'm being mistreated. So it must be because of, but that's really your speculation as to somebody else's motive. And we tend to assume other people's motive often incorrectly. I want to talk a little, I'm going to switch gears for a minute and talk specifically about harassment complaints, um, because I think that there seems to be a lot of, in particular, misunderstanding sometimes about those kind of complaints. And one of the, and I want to see if you agree with me on this, Amy, because I would hear a lot, particularly around sexual harassment complaints, that it was this kind of he said, she said kind of scenario. And certainly we know that a lot of sexually harassing behavior occurs in private. You know, not many people decide to do sexual harassment in front of a group, you know, in front of a lot of witnesses. And yet it was my experience as an investigator that that was very, very rare because for a couple of reasons, one being that if I'm being sexually harassed at work, I might not complain about it right away or even ever to my boss, to HR, um, even to my coworkers, but I am usually going to tell somebody that this is going on. And I know as part of some of the investigations I did, I sometimes interviewed people outside of the workplace um, and who were able to say, yeah, this was, you know, back in 2000 and 
you know, 18, when this was allegedly actually this person was extremely upset. They were talking about the problems at work or the therapist said A and B and C. And I think, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, people misunderstand and think that in a he said, she said situation that they need corroboration, meaning a direct witness. But what you're talking about is indirect corroboration. So, I mean, the classic example in my mind is back to Anita Hill. She told close friends of hers at the time that she was being harassed. And there was no motive for her to lie about that. And that's indirect corroboration that that occurred. Unless you can come up with a motive why 10 years prior to the, um, the hearings for um, Justice Thomas, she would make something up, then that's pretty strong evidence. And yet it was ignored. And even if there isn't that evidence, People seem to misunderstand and think that you can't make a finding without corroboration when, of course, you can, just like a judge or jury will look at the overall credibility of the person who brings the complaint. And if they're credible, even without corroboration, then you make a finding in their favor. So why do people wait so long oftentimes to make a complaint? Because that immediately as you and I know. Um, I think it has nothing to do necessarily with the validity of that complaint, but I do think immediately it raises a huge question mark for many people about, okay, is this really true? Because if this, per if this was true, then this person either would have or should have spoken up earlier. There are so many reasons people don't complain. Studies about it show that one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons is they don't want to get someone else in trouble. You think it's going to get better. Um, you think that um, you can handle it on your own. You, again, you, maybe you don't think it's so serious that somebody should get fired. There's a zero tolerance policy. What if you get the person fired? What about retaliation? Is it really worth it? It's not fun to go through an investigation. There's so many reasons that people don't complain and then at some point either it just becomes too much for them or maybe they tell a co-worker who then the co-worker surfaces it and isn't it is a whistleblower in that situation um, or they realize they're going to lose their job anyway like we talked about before so let's take another quick break and when we come back i want to talk again and shift gears and kind of go back to our whistleblowing theme at the very beginning and, and specifically just ask you what do you think are maybe some common myths that either that we as a nation or that you know the general public has about whistleblowers you are listening to thread of evidence on america out loud and my guest today is amy oppenheimer and i'm dr joni johnston we'll be right back this is dr ron martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. 
that's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police, at Amazon.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Thread of Evidence. Again, I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. We have a really interesting show today on whistleblowing and workplace investigations, which is a very timely issue today in the media, particularly in light of what's going on in Washington. And I started out the show talking about really this love-hate relationship that we Americans tend to have with whistleblowers. On the one hand, we recognize the fact that they oftentimes have our best interest at heart, and yet there's oftentimes this sense of like, this person isn't loyal, they're not a team player. That person is under a fishbowl and we, you know, look at everything they've done or haven't done. And so, you know, I've talked to plenty of whistleblowers who felt like at the end of the day that they were almost martyrs and that they were maybe helping the generations that came was coming after them, but they felt like they lost a lot. So I want to talk, Amy, a little bit about the myths that are floating around about whistleblowers and how accurate some of these are. Um, Again, one being that maybe their motives are suspect or that maybe their their goal is to achieve fame or recognition in some way. Yeah, no, I think you've named a lot of them. It's funny. One of the ones that I was going to say is, yeah, not a team player, which you said, uh, or just this disgruntled employee who has always had an ax to grind and then it, it comes forward that way. Um, I think there are some myths about people being attention seekers or wanting the, the soapbox. Um, and um, certainly some about people really wanting financial gain for themselves. I guess that sort of goes along with the, the fame and glory. Um, and I don't know that really the, there's any evidence that whistleblowers fall into any of those categories. I, I would agree with you on that. I think that oftentimes um, many of the individuals individuals I've interviewed really kind of felt like they didn't anticipate gaining a lot and also that they felt like they've lost a lot more than they anticipated. So it's a pretty, oh, yeah. it's a pretty difficult road to hoe, I think, for people who choose to speak up. I mean, again, I, and I don't like to get too political, but look at what happened with Blasey Ford, you know, I mean, here's somebody who's such a private person who comes forward because she feels she has to, and, um, you know, she had to move. I don't know if she's back in her house yet. Um, she, look at how much she lost as a result of coming forward. Absolutely true. And I think there's probably lots of examples of that. Now, this is a very complicated question and one that I I was interested in when I was thinking about it. Let's say that you have a person who works for a company. Um, Maybe they're working for an accounting company and they discover that there's some financial misdeeds going on. And in fact, as it turns out, this person has participated Mm. in these misdeeds. So either because they felt pressure to do so. They weren't aware of the kind of the scope of what was going on. And now all of a sudden the person realizes that, Hey, this is really a huge thing. It's really a problem. But given that I participated in this, can I still be a whistleblower? Right. And there, you know, there might be a consequence. I mean, the fact that somebody comes forward if they have really engaged in wrongdoing themselves doesn't insulate themselves from the consequences it should insulate them from 
more serious consequences than would have been the case had it been found some other way. But um, it doesn't mean they get a free pass either. So it sounds like that really the circumstances, because I would imagine if somebody was, you know, obviously doing something to their books, for example, and not being aware of how this was being used, that's one scenario. Um, on the other hand, if you have somebody who was actively involved in planning a fraudulent activity, the consequences would probably be a lot more severe. Certainly. I mean, and that's where you do have to look at um, intent. You know, in sexual harassment, people often say it's not the intent, it's the impact. And while certainly you have to look at the impact in deciding whether something is harassment, the intent goes to how serious the consequences are for the, for the perpetrator. Absolutely. Now, the issue of confidentiality is a huge concern, I think, for everybody. The concern for the whistleblower is obviously, am I going to be in danger? Am I going to be retaliated against? Is my identity going to be protected, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes in companies, the whole concern is, is this going to get out in the media um, and our reputation be damaged? So as an investigator, Amy, Speak to the issue of confidentiality and investigations in the workplace. I'm so glad you brought that up because it is such a difficult area. The way I like to put it is that everybody you talk to would like full confidentiality for everything they tell you. And everybody you talk to would like full transparency for everybody else. <laughs> it obviously doesn't work that way. You know, the public feels like, well, we want to know if somebody's accused. We want to know, we want to see that whole 100-page investigative report with what everybody said, and then we'll decide whether we agree or disagree with your findings, Ms. Oppenheimer. But you're talking to all of these people who are trusting you with information when they have to keep working for that employer. You're so you're asking them for information that may be very personal and private, that may be, it may be they're friends with somebody, and yet they're telling you things that would go against that person. And they're very worried about retaliation from everybody, from the, from the complainant, from the respondent, from their coworkers. So you want to be able to protect them, and yet you have this countervailing call for transparency. So how do you work, walk that line between confidentiality and protecting, again, the rights of everybody, including witnesses, not just the complainant um, or the alleged perpetrator or accused, but everybody involved, and at the same time provide enough information to give a, like a co coherent finding and recommendations? How do you do that? Well, the report that I deliver to the employer I, I do investigations as an attorney. They're under the attorney-client privilege usually. Not, not everybody wants them to be, but if the employer wants them to be, they are. And then they, the employer has to make some decisions about um, how much of it to reveal. I might do an executive summary that has much less information but my findings so that they can provide that information to the complainant and respondent. Ultimately, if there's litigation, it may not be protected because in order for the employer to explain 
why they took certain action, then they may need to use the investigation as a defense, in which case information would no longer be private. Certainly they can ask a judge to redact names that don't have to be revealed, but it's hard to guarantee that none of this will ever see the light of day. And witnesses need to understand that. So when you are interviewing witnesses, what do you tell them? I tell them that I will keep it as confidential as I can, but that I do need to report back um, to the employer as to what my factual findings are. That if they are nervous about retaliation, which many are, often it's, it's one specific fact they might have, and that if I can um, generalize that fact, say one witness said, for example, and not name them, that I might be able to do that. But if it's something that's very specific to them, like the complainant said, Joe Smith witnessed this, I may have to say, Joe Smith did witness it based on what Joe Smith said. So I can't guarantee that kind of anonymity. I've had cases where I've, um, I've given the employer a report that has anonymized everybody. And I have a chart at home about who is who or at my office, my home office, I say home because I work out of my home office. Um, and then that, that will only be available should there be litigation and a judge would order to know the names. Now, what about after the investigation is complete, you've given your findings to whoever, your employer, whoever that would be, HR or a VP or whatever, what information, if any, do the people who were involved in the investigation, the witnesses, the complainant, uh, the person who's been accused, how much information do they get about the outcome? One of the things that's hard for witnesses to understand is they don't get information about the outcome. The way I explain that to them is, look, if there's a complaint against you, it may or may not be a founded legitimate complaint, you would want it kept private. And here you're a witness, and much as you might be curious about what happens, that I have to respect the privacy of the complaint and the respondent. And so I'm not, nobody is going to come back and say, oh, yes, this person, we found this person did it or they didn't, because we do want to respect confidentiality. Usually, once you talk to them about it, they understand. Sure. The complaint and the respondent have a right to know the outcome. Um, how much detail, there isn't really any specific legal right and employers treat it differently. Some of them will give them a summary of the findings and explain the basic rationale behind the findings. Others will just say, here's what the findings were. And certainly if somebody is found to have violated rules and, and will, have, will be disciplined, then they're going to get more information about why they're being disciplined. And the more serious the discipline, the more information they might get. It also depends if it's a public employer or a private or if it's unionized, because there may be rules associated with that that dictate how much information people are given. 
And what about the accused or the respondent, as you called it, which is probably a much better, I've been working in the criminal arena maybe too much lately, so that's, I'm thinking of the accused, but um, the respondent who says to you, look, you know, I don't care about an anonymous complaint. I have the right to know who's making these accusations. I want a list of people who are you're talking to. So I can, you know, have the right to respond to these. What I tell the respondent is, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to know all of the allegations and fully respond. But who brought it? Let's say it was a bystander. Shouldn't be important how, unless you think that there's somebody who really has it out to get you and wouldn't be credible for that reason. If there is somebody at work like that, tell me about that so that I can assess it. But I want the information I need so that I can do an objective assessment. That doesn't necessitate, though, revealing to you what everybody told me. I think that's a good point. We're almost out of time, unfortunately, but I think it, I wanted to speak to that a little bit differently, but I think it piggybacks on what you said, because I've certainly had plenty of respondents say to me, I want to give you a list of people I always ask, and I'm sure you do too, who would be important for me to talk to as part of this investigation? Definitely. Um, and I ask that, of course, of the person who's making the complaint, the person who's responding, and, and also the witnesses as well. But I follow that up with, with what information do you think that they would be able to give me? Because one of the things I get, and I'm sure you do too, is sometimes people say, well, here's a list of character witnesses basically. Or here's a list of people who, you know, essentially don't like the complainant. And he could tell you all kinds of annoying things about that. And so I think it's important. It, it, it does a couple of things. It makes sure that the investigation is narrow enough that it is addressing that specific complaints. If other complaints surface, they become separate individual complaints. But it also lets the person know this isn't going to be a witch hunt on any side. You know, yes. this is going to be specific to this particular complaint. I think the way I put that to people is I'm investigating an allegation. I'm not investigating that person. I'm not trying to decide if they're a good person or a bad person. I'm trying to figure out whether a specific thing happened. Well, Amy, thank you so much uh, on that ending. That's, I really appreciate you being on the show. A lot of really good information. Uh, one of the things that we've talked about today is just the competing rights when it comes to workplace investigations and workplace complaints. And so while we, I think, acknowledge that there can be different reasons for people to be whistleblowers, I think it's also important for us to kind of remember Thomas Jefferson's famous complaint, which was that all tyranny needs to gain a foothold is for people of good conscience to remain silent. Mm -hmm. um, so on that ending, I'd like to thank everybody for listening today. Again, it's Dr. Joni Johnston, my guest, Amy Oppenheimer. We'll see you next time on Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud.